Please open a Bible to Proverbs chapter 3. If you're using the church Bible, that's page 627. As we're opening there, Amanda, you're going to have to give everybody a wave. I introduced you as a new member, possibly the greatest member we've ever received, uh, but you weren't here yet, so it's uh, good that everybody can see, uh, see you in person, so just teasing. Uh, uh, she is great, but uh, just teasing. Uh, chapter 3 here in Proverbs, we hear the father three times address his son in verse 1, 10, and 11, and in a variety of ways, the father is arguing with the son, trying to convince him of the lasting value of wisdom and the importance of taking hold of it. So you see, he says, my son, don't forget my teaching. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline. My son, don't lose sight of wisdom and understanding. The whole chapter is focused on trying to shape the listener's values and desires, trying to convince the son and therefore us, the listeners who take the role of the son, that we should value wisdom above all else that living wisely should be our highest desire. Let's listen in then on this conversation between the father and son. I'm going to warn you, it's a little bit longer than usual passages that we look at. Uh, Proverbs 3, reading the whole chapter. My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing can you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and her left hand in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds drop down the dew. My son, don't lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Don't be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. 
Don't withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Don't plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Don't contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Don't envy a man of violence and don't choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord and the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. This is God's word. This is a longer passage, and I'd encourage you to keep it open. I know I heard a couple Bibles close already, but I don't know who it was. But uh, I'd encourage you to keep it open as we're going to move back and forth through this passage. Rather than trying to just work sequentially through it, uh, which I think would take quite some time, what I want to do this morning is focus on two themes that lead us through the passage. The two themes are that God works by wisdom, and so we live by wisdom. God works by wisdom, and so we live by wisdom. First, God works by wisdom. God works by wisdom. Wisdom is so valuable, uh, more valuable than silver or gold, more desirable than anything else. It's valuable and worth pursuing because God himself works by wisdom. Last week, I suggested one of the ways we could think about wisdom as taking all that we know about God and applying it to all of our life. If that's wisdom, does it make sense then to talk about God working by wisdom? Actually, yes. God's character, all that there is to know about God, that he is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, love, and truth, all that there is to know about God, all of his character, shapes God's life and action. What God does is always consistent with who God is. Sometimes we'll talk about someone doing something and we'll say it's out of character for them. It doesn't fit with their usual behavior. After all, we as humans have conflicting motives. We have desires that are often at odds. And so sometimes we do things that are unexpected to those around us. But not so for God. He never acts out of character. Rather, he always acts, he always works in a way that is perfectly consistent with his character. That doesn't mean he's bound to do only one thing. There's lots of different things he could do in any given circumstance. But what he does is perfectly consistent with who he is. And so, in part, this is what it means that God works by wisdom. It means he takes all that he is, all of his character, all that there is to know about God, and he works in a way that's perfectly consistent with that character. God's character is applied in all of his works so that all of God's works in creation and providence reveal his wisdom. In Proverbs 3, we see two specific works, or maybe three, where God works by wisdom. First, God works creation by wisdom. Creation is ordered by wisdom. That's what verses 19 and 20 tell us. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken open 
and the clouds drop down dew. Creation is not haphazard. By chance, God threw something together on a whim. God is consistently depicted throughout the Bible as being a careful builder, a thoughtful craftsman, an artisan who uses wisdom and understanding and knowledge as tools to carefully construct the entire created order. Okay, I can hammer boards together and do some real rough, ugly framing, and it might stand up. But when you see a real craftsman, like some of the cabinets that Dan does, for example, and you see the artistry of wood being joined together well, that's the picture that we have for all of creation, that God knows what he's doing. He knows his, how to shape things in a way that's wise. He set up the earth's foundation, its, its very being, its, it, what it is using wisdom. And with vast understanding, he stretched out the vast heavens. I googled it and was surprised to discover that the latest estimate is that there is actually a trillion galaxies, each with billions of stars, and yet it's all within God's understanding and his wise work. Verse 20 tells us not only does he establish, set up, build creation with wisdom, but that he sustains and refreshes creation. The deeps are broken open, so there's space for dry land for us to live on. And yet that dry land is refreshed by uh, uh, the rain, the dew that comes down from heaven. I know I was looking out thinking, I sure actually hope it rains today because I don't want to start watering yet. So we're thankful. And in Israel, they're even more so dependent on the rain, uh, uh, even for their crops. And so God is a wise creator who sets up the world in a wise way, but then sustains it through his wisdom. But remember, the Father's point here is how important wisdom is for us. So what's he saying here? He's saying God works creation by wisdom, and so we need to get a hold of wisdom. When you butcher an animal or you slice up a flank steak, you have to pay attention to the grain of the meat. When you're sanding wood, you need to pay attention to the grain of the wood, and you work with the grain. Well, if God creates all things by wisdom, we might say that wisdom is the grain of the universe. It's the way things go. And so if we want to live wisely in the world, we need to live with the grain of the universe, not fight against it. Uh, The theologian and poet Francis Young calls wisdom the wild order of things. So we're starting to see why wisdom is more precious than jewels or anything you can desire. Because it's the way God set up the world. And if we get a hold of that, we're starting to get a sense of how to live well in the world. But God also works redemption by wisdom. Stick with me for a moment here. In Genesis 3, we read the sequel to God creating by wisdom. Rather than living with the grain of the universe and recognizing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the first couple seek knowledge by disobeying God and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And that initial rebellion mars creation. It mars the good order. So human relationships, especially between men and women, are marked by sin, Genesis 3 says. And our very relationship to the earth itself is frustrated. You plant seeds and you get weeds. And don't we know that that's the way it works in our gardens? Uh, it's, It's a frustrated relationship. And then the first humans are exiled from the garden, God says, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever 
in this broken, twisted, rebellious state. Interestingly, the tree of life is only then mentioned in two other books of the Bible. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 2, saints are given the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And Revelation 22 says that the tree of life grows on either side of the river that flows from the throne of God. I picture it as one of these Hawaiian trees with the roots, you know, that go for a city block. Somehow it goes over the river and flows through it. And we're told that this tree of life that's on either side of the river bears a different fruit each month and that its leaves bring healing to the nations. If that sounds a bit like Tolkien's Lothlorien to you, it's meant to. It's a picture of creation restored, of the garden regained, of life as it's meant to be, of the garden extended throughout the whole world in this sort of garden city where God dwells with his people. So the tree of life, it's in Genesis 3 at the beginning, and then it's Genesis 2 and 3 at the beginning. It's in Revelation at the end. And then the one other spot in the Bible that talks about the tree of life is in Proverbs. So here in Proverbs 3, do you see verse 18? She, that is wisdom, is a tree of life for those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Apart from Genesis 2 and 3 and Revelation, this is the only spot in the Bible that talks about the tree of life. And do you see all the blessings that wisdom promises here in chapter 3? Look at the even-numbered verses in the first part of the chapter, verse 2, 4, 6, 8, 10. Wisdom offers length of days and years of life and peace, favor and good success in the sight of God and man, healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats bursting with wine. Similarly, verses 16 and 17, long life is in wisdom's right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. What wisdom promises here is life the way it was meant to be, the sort of garden life that God had intended for his people. It's a picture of creation restored, life abundant. And so what Proverbs is saying is for now, for the time being, between the exile from the garden and new life in the new city, in the middle, Proverbs itself and the wisdom it offers is a sort of temporary tree of life for us. In Proverbs wisdom, we find resources to live well in God's world, to recover something of the sort of life we were meant to live. By seeking God's wisdom, God's people can live with the grain of the universe and recover some of those benefits of the tree of life, a long, verdant, abundant life. But even the longest and most successful life inevitably ends in death. Even the most prosperous life in this world is still marked by the curse of sin and frustration. Even the happiest marriage at times has conflict and pain. And so this tree of life is only provisional. It can't resolve all the problems. And so at the very center of God's redeeming work is the cross, another tree where we see the fruition of God working redemption by wisdom, 
where Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As we've already heard this morning, Paul writes that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we're exiled from the tree of life, but Christ gave himself on another tree and calls us to come and eat the fruit of that tree so that we might have this eternal life, this end eating from the tree again. And in the middle, in the meantime, we're given Proverbs and its wisdom to teach us how to live. So God orders creation by wisdom. He orders redemption by wisdom. He also orders us by wisdom, inside and out. Wisdom offers blessing in this life, but being blessed is not life's ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that by wisdom, we would be made to fit to dwell with God eternally in that garden city. And so God works to order us, to order you and I, to order our lives by wisdom. We need to pause here for a moment. Superficially, Proverbs 3 looks like it teaches what gets, is called prosperity gospel. Uh, that, the, that the good news is that if you follow God, he will give you health and wealth and all your dreams. It looks like Proverbs is saying that. It's quite bold in what it claims here. But if we set Proverbs 3 in the context of this larger story of the tree of life lost in the garden, regained at the cross, promised in eternity, then it should shape how we think about wisdom's blessings. If our ultimate desire is simply for a long life, peace, health, wealth, we might look like we are serving God, but we're really using God to get what we want. We're treating God like a sort of cosmic Santa Claus, that if you're nice all year, you'll get what you want at Christmas. But no one has a relationship with Santa. It's sort of a cosmic slot machine that you put in niceness, you get out blessing. And we can treat God like that. And when there's no relationship, when we're just using God to get ahead, when financial hardship or sickness or strife or disaster come, it is devastating. If God really loved me, why would he let me get sick or lose my job? But if our ultimate desire is for God himself, then we see that God uses even hardship as well as blessing to make us fit for eternity, to shape us into the sort of people we need to be. And so do you see verses 11 and 12? In the middle of all these promises of of abundant life, what do we see? My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline. That discipline, it's not um, corporal punishment. That's not what it's saying. But discipline in the sense that an athlete is disciplined over time, that, that we have to be trained. Don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. That is consequences, uh, corporal punishment, that sort of thing. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Hardship is not a sign that God doesn't love you. The contrary, it's a sign or it can be a sign that God does love you. Now, Proverbs is certainly not claiming that every bad thing that happens is God's discipline. There are horrors and terrible evil in the world as a result of sin. And some things that happen that are horrific It's because of sin. 
And we've seen God's response to those. He takes the horrors and evils on himself on the cross uh, to undo that curse. But Proverbs 3 does teach, as one commentator puts it, that prosperity and adversity are the wise and necessary mixture of the saint's condition. Okay, God seeks to bless his people, but I guess we're a bit like a two-stroke engine, that there needs to be oil mixed in with the gas to keep it running well. Uh, if you only ever had blessing, you would think this life is the end, that this is where we're meant to be forever. And in a sense, yes, we are meant for life on this earth, but the earth restored with God here dwelling with us. So we need both prosperity and adversity to grow into the kinds of people God is making us. A wise and thoughtful parent will not only bless their children with good things, but will also discipline their children and at times let their children face adversity so that they can grow. Okay, if you only ever do everything for your children, they're going to be children their whole lives, and that's not the goal of parenting. Proverbs says, discipline and even reproof are proof that God loves us as a father who delights in his son. I know I confessed earlier on accident, our sons, not our sins, in the, in the, but God delights in his sons, uh, uh, in his children, and that's why he reproves them. So God works in, in, by wisdom in creation, in redemption, in us. And so the corresponding second theme in this passage is that we then live by wisdom. We live by wisdom. We see this theme really throughout the chapter. Uh, wisdom is one for God and humanity, and so we live in God's wisdom. But I want to focus just on two spots here. The first is in verses 5 through 10, which teach us that we live by wisdom when we trust in God. We live by wisdom when we trust in the Lord. Uh, these are some of the most well-known verses in the whole book, and rightly so. I think when I read it, I accidentally went back to the NIV translation because that's what I memorized uh, uh, when I was maybe eight or ten because they're such well-known verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. We live by wisdom when we trust in the Lord. We trust in something when we rely on it for protection, for security in the face of danger. Okay, you might have used rope all week without thinking about it, tying up, I don't know, I tied up an apple tree this week. Maybe you tied up a sheep or a lamb or something, who knows, tied up the dog. And we don't really think about it, we just use rope. But if you're going to rappel off the side of a building or a cliff, you better trust the rope that you're tied to. When your life's on the line, that's when you're really trusting something. And so like a rope that we trust our lives to, we're to trust the Lord with our entire hearts to rely on him for our security. It's contrasted with leaning on or supporting ourselves. It's not leaning like this, but it's leaning like, you know, you're leaning on this. And if the pulpit's gone, then I fall on my face. That's the kind of, that's the kind of leaning, uh, using a cane, that sort of thing. It's saying, don't lean on your own understanding. It will ultimately fail you. This is one of the most countercultural teachings in the entire book. Our whole culture is predicated on the claim that you belong to yourself. And so you have to submit everything to your own understanding. What other standard is there? If I don't understand it, I don't believe it, I don't do it. But trusting in the Lord with all my heart means recognizing that my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, 
but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. If we're not our own, if we belong to Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior, then we can't simply lean on our own understanding. Our understanding can't be our final law. Rather, in all our ways, we need to acknowledge him. Acknowledge is a little bit of a bland translation there. Literally, it's saying simply, in all your ways, know him. Wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, know God in the midst of that situation. Desire God's presence when you're at work and when you're at home, when you're doing chores, when you're getting ready for bed, when you're off on vacation, recreating. Know God in all your ways. Desire his presence in all your ways, in every part of your life. Then he will make your paths straight. That is absolutely true. He will make your paths straight. But we need to have a bird's eye view. Okay, if you're just looking, I took this step and then this step. This doesn't seem very straight path. Where am I going in life? Uh, but if you have a bird's eye view, God does lead us straight. If we seek to know God in all of our ways, then ultimately our path will lead straight to him. The Portuguese have a proverb, God writes straight with crooked lines. It's often the way our lives look. You're walking the path of your life and you think, I, how did I wind up over here? I remember uh, in high school, I, music was the main thing. I practiced music all the time. When I went to college, I thought I was going to be a music major. And then through grad school, I hardly played music at all because I was so busy. And I thought, what was, what was the point of all that? Where did it go? And then, uh, and then our church needed someone to lead music. And I thought, well, I used to know how to play the guitar. I think I can get back into it. Uh, you guys can be the judges if I figured out how to recover how to play guitar or not. But then looking back, I think, oh, it's good. I spent all that time in high school practicing music and learning to read music. And now I can teach hymns to this congregation. Uh, not this congregation, but the church I was at before this. Uh, well, I, I can teach you guys hymns too. But anyways, neither here nor there. Uh, the point being, God writes straight. He has his purposes in mind. And yet, when we're looking at head, we think, well, why am I over here now? And why am I doing this? And then you look back and you think, oh, I see now. If in all our ways we seek to know God, our paths will lead straight to him. Verses 7 through 10 then show us the cost and reward of knowing God in our personal ways and in our financial ways. In our personal ways, knowing God means not being wise in our own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Uh, Genesis 3, it's really, there's this wisdom theme running through the whole chapter. In the garden, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And so she took the fruit and ate. That's being wise in your own eyes. Literally, it uses that language of being wise in your own eyes. But eating the fruit, although it was wise in our own eyes, had disastrous, unintended consequences. But Proverbs says we know God when we are not wise in our own eyes, but instead stand in awe and fear before the Lord and turn away from what he tells us is evil. Okay, this is costly. It means missing out on things that might look good to us, but are ultimately bad for us. If we fear the Lord and listen to what he calls evil and good, we will find ourselves often out of step with our culture, with our community. And that's costly. But knowing God in our personal ways also comes with great reward. Verse 8 says, It will be a healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. 
Likewise, verse 9 tells us what it looks like to know God in our financial ways and trust him. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Wealth can be a blessing from God, and yet it also brings with it great danger. Wealth poses the temptation to self-sufficiency, self-reliance. There's danger in wealth, and that's why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. In Asia, the fruit of harvest, and the harvest knows to bring. It's going to be a good harvest or a bad harvest. So our natural instinct is to store up everything we're going to need for the coming year and then give some of the very last fruit to the Lord when we know we have enough. But for the first fruit offering here in Proverbs is a challenge to trust and lean on the Lord to provide. This is intrinsically costly. Uh, the council's been reading a book together on mercy ministry and discussing it, and one of the challenges in it, maybe the most challenging part of the book so far, is saying uh, it's not a flat rate like you give this much per year to your church or to mercy ministry, that sort of thing, but that we should give in a way that affects how we live, our standard of living. Okay, we may not need to give everything away like the rich young ruler or Francis Assisi, but if we are honoring God with our wealth, it will affect how we live. Okay? Maybe we won't have as fancy of a car as we would otherwise, or as new of a TV, or as exotic of a vacation, or, and I know I'm hitting a little close to home, as big of a fireworks show as we might if we just use our wealth on ourselves. It's costly, but again, it comes with a startling reward. You see in verse 10 there, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This isn't an investment strategy. It's not saying if you give X, Y, and Z, then you're going to get X, Y, and Z back. What you get isn't pegged to what you give, but rather to having the right attitude that leads to blessing. Together, verses 9 and 10 are saying, if you honor the Lord by using your resources to help others, you will then have more resources to help others over time. When we, we live by wisdom when we trust God. Second, let's flip to the end of the chapter, verses 27 through 31, which teach us that we live by wisdom when we practice righteousness. We live by wisdom when we practice righteousness. In verses 27 through 31, do you see the father gives his son five instructions that all begin, do not do X, Y, or Z. Then it's summarized in verses 32 through 35 with a series of contrasts. Hear these contrasts. The devious person is repulsive to the Lord, but the upright are his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the righteous. Toward the scorners, God is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. This summary, it's really just distinguishing two groups that are described with a very number of synonyms. One group is devious, wicked, scornful, and foolish. The other group is upright, righteous, humble, and wise. I think this is the first time we've seen this explicit contrast between the righteous and the wicked in the book of Proverbs, but it's really fundamental to the way Proverbs sees the world. When we hear the word wicked, uh, we tend to think of maybe the wicked witch of the West, or maybe you think of Hitler or Pol Pot, or I don't know, whoever the really wicked uh, bad guy is, the really bad people. But that's really not the way Proverbs thinks about the wicked and the righteous. 
Uh, Bruce Walkie, a scholar who spent decades studying the book of Proverbs, says that in Proverbs, the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of the community, but the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. One more time, and if I didn't do the bulletin two weeks ago, I would have put it in there so you can see this quote. Uh, it's, it's pivotal. The righteous willingly disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked willingly are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Okay, that is to say the righteous put the good of the community ahead of themselves versus the wicked put themselves ahead of the community. Uh, in class, Walkie illustrated the point this way. When you walk into the public restroom and you see, you know, there's, you dry your hands on the paper towel and then you throw it for the garbage can and you miss and it falls on the floor. And if you think, well, you know, they pay someone to clean this bathroom. Someone else will get it. I don't need to worry about it. And you walk out. That's wicked. <laughs> that is saying someone else will take care of it. I'll put my own good. I don't want to touch a bathroom floor. It's gross. Uh, you're putting your own good ahead of that of the community. On the other hand, if you walk into the public restroom and you see a mess of paper towels on the ground and you grab them and throw them away in the garbage, it's not your store. You don't have to clean it up. It's not your public restroom. And yet you're putting the good of others, of the community, ahead of yourself. There's a Christian lady. I know she's a Christian lady because we've talked a few times um, that does a four-mile circuit kind of around our neighborhood. And she always walks with a uh, reusable shopping bag and tongs and she picks up trash as she goes. It's not her trash. She didn't make the mess but she's putting the advantage of the community ahead of herself. That's righteous. Well, if we go back to 27 through 31, then we see how this works out. In verses 27 and 28, there's a pair that we might describe as sins of omission, leaving undone that which we ought to do. Don't withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it when you have it with you. Okay, it might be inconvenient to stop what you're doing to loan your neighbor a lawnmower or a cup of sugar or whatever they need, but we live by wisdom when we practice righteousness and disadvantage ourselves to advantage our neighbor. Okay, it works out even just at this sort of level of doing something at a time that's good for your neighbor and inconvenient for yourself. Verses 27 and 28 are saying our obligation to our neighbor overrides our personal convenience. Verses 29 and 30 then describe sins of commission, doing things that we ought not to do. Don't plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Okay, don't take advantage of your neighbor's trust. Don't contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm or literally no evil. It's saying, uh, say your neighbor cuts down some trees on your property, but it wasn't because he was being malicious. He just didn't realize where the property line was. Okay, contending, it's like a lawsuit term. Yeah, you could sue them for cutting down your trees, but Proverbs is saying, don't, don't, if they're not being malevolent, they're not intentionally trying to harm you, don't make a big deal out of it. Okay, if, if, if 27 to 28 are saying that our obligation to our neighbor overrides personal convenience, 29 and 30 are saying, don't advantage yourself at your neighbor's cost. And then we see this progression from sins of omission to sins of commission to in verse 31, becoming a violent neighbor. Do you see how transformative this way of thinking is? How different are marriages where both spouses are willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of the other. 
How much happier are families where everyone is willing to put the good of the family as a whole ahead of themselves? It's not my mess, but I'll clean it up to serve the family. How much richer would our community life be if we as neighbors disadvantaged ourselves for the advantage of the community? How much does this transform politics if politicians put the good of the nation ahead of their own private advantage? Indeed, think of international politics where a country says, yeah, it's bad for us, but it's good for you and you need this. And so we're going to disadvantage ourselves for your own good. It almost sounds insane to talk about foreign policy like that. The problem is we're worried about getting taken advantage of. What if my wife takes advantage of me? I do all this for her and she just ignores me. What if I clean up after my kids and they never learn to do chores? What if I look out for my neighbor and they just take advantage of me? That's what we worry about. And so as we end, what we need to do is return to the tree of life. Understanding righteousness from Proverbs helps us to understand what it means that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. If righteousness means disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others, and the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, we can see that Christ is righteous when he disadvantages himself for our advantage. He reveals God's righteousness, God's desire to put us ahead of himself even. What is the gospel? That That Christ gave up heaven and came to earth so that we might inherit heaven. He became poor so that we might be rich. He was humbled so that we might be exalted. Not just humbled, but beaten and mocked and indeed crucified. He took the curse of sin so that we might be made righteous. He died that we might live. He endured, worst of all, God-forsakenness so that one day we might dwell in the new Jerusalem with God himself, that we might live with God forever. Do you see how the cross reveals the righteousness of God? That Christ is willing to put the advantage of others ahead of himself? And when this gets down inside of us, it becomes life for our soul, as Proverbs 3 says, an adornment for our neck, and we can walk securely, trusting in the Lord who disadvantages himself for our advantage. And then once that gets down inside of you, what does it matter? What can you not give up to love your neighbor, knowing that we have been given God himself through Christ's sacrificial love? That's the starting point of this transformative way of living, coming to the tree of life and eating its fruit. Let's pray together. Lord, let us indeed have this wisdom that you offer. May wisdom be to us a tree of life as we lay hold of wisdom. May we be blessed by wisdom. We see your wise working in the world, so teach us to live with the grain of the universe. And teach us to live by wisdom, depending and trusting on you, seeking to know you in all of our ways. Let us live by wisdom, by practicing righteousness. You have put our good ahead of your own. You have disadvantaged yourself so that we might be advantaged. As we come to terms with that, as it transforms our way of thinking, let us model that sort of Christ-like behavior in our own lives. 
let us be willing to disadvantage ourselves for the good of others. Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, trusting that all these other things will be added to us in your good season. Some here, Lord, perhaps have never eaten fruit from the tree of life. That is to say, they've never come to the cross of Jesus and unburdened themselves at the foot of that tree of their sin and their shame and their guilt. Let them hear this morning the free offer to come to the cross and find true life. Others of us, Lord, confess that we know Jesus and that we submit to him, and yet this sort of righteous living has yet to characterize our lives. By your Holy Spirit, be at work within us, sanctifying us, making us righteous. 